in about third grade, uh, at the time we were living in Los Angeles, in third grade I did something that I deeply regret. Well, in, in a sense at the time I deeply regretted it because I ended up in the principal's office. But I began to sort of understand what happened a little later on after my parents, well, told me what I did wrong. I began to deeply regret what I'd done because I had said something to a friend of mine that I never should have said. And, and, and at the time, I didn't even know what I was saying. I don't know if you grew up in a family like mine, but I'm a pretty regular old conservative white evangelical kid. I mean, I grew up in a real, I'm a ministry kid. I'm a preacher's kid and a professor's kid, and we uh, traveled a lot, and I have a lot of sort of diversity in my background. Born in Lansing, Michigan, went to Johnson City, went to Los Angeles, went to Cincinnati, went to Chicago, Seattle, Chicago, Johnson City, here. So, like, by the time I was in middle school, it was like 10 different schools. And in elementary school at the time, I was a minority as a white kid. And all my friends were uh, mostly Hispanic. Uh, They were all black or Hispanic. Uh, A couple white kids. There was this German kid named Klaus who had the super cool bike two blocks down from me. And so Klaus and I hung out some too. But we were the only white kids basically in Barrio Van Nuys, if that means anything to you. Barrio Van Nuys is uh, where gang life in in the the suburban part of Los Angeles kind of grew. And and that was just happening as I was there. And my friend Cesar and I were playing... And this is where what I deeply regret happened. We were playing at recess. Oh, what fun times those were. Recess. I just want some recess in my life. We were playing at recess, and I don't even remember the circumstances, but Cesar did something. I don't even remember what it was, honestly. He did something, but, but at the time, I was so, I was, ugh, I was angry at him. I was like, I'm going to, And I, so I said a, a racial slur to Cesar. At the time, I didn't know what it meant. I just heard somebody say it. And so I yelled it at him and (laughs) bunches of other kids around. And as soon as I yelled it, I knew something was wrong because all these kids went. (gasps) And I thought, what did I say? I didn't know what I said in terms of the word, but I knew in my heart that I was saying something that I wanted to hurt him with. And so I ended up in the principal's office with Cesar and uh, the poor kid. You know, I'm sitting there dumbfounded like I, I said a word. I don't even know what I said. And he's sitting there like crying. And, and, and he blurts out, you didn't even use the right word, you know. And so I'm sitting there not knowing what I had said in terms of the word. But, but looking back, I, what I understood later was in my heart, man, I was, I was doing exactly what I knew I was doing. I, mean, I, I, knew, I knew that when I was saying that word, I was hurting him. Now, that's just, just third grade. <clears throat> but what happens, and I know that you can all raise your hand, in affirmation of this one. What happens when you do something you deeply regret? You say something or you do something you deeply regret. And then you say something or you do something you deeply regret. That was that same exact thing that you said or did that you deeply regretted. Or you say or do something you deeply regretted that was the same thing you deeply regretted that you deeply regretted. We could keep going with numbers four, five, six, and so on in our lives. Every single one of us in this room, in these pews, have done things, have said things, have operated out of this place that we deeply regret what we said or what we did. And if I asked you to raise your hands, you'd all be raising your hands. I know you are on the inside. Instead of that, let's go ahead and pass out that microphone. So, No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
and guests are guests would be like, this place is crazy. <coughs> Here's the truth of the matter, and this is what Scripture tells us today that we're going to look at in Romans 7. We all struggle with sin. To deny that is to deny what the Bible says about who we are. We all struggle with sin. We talked last week about being fully identified, fully in union with Christ and the legal justification and standing that we have with Christ because that, which is real, which is real, and, and we have to learn to live out of that. That's what sanctification is. That's where Romans 5 becomes Romans 6, 7, and 8. From justification to sanctification, from legal standing with God as declared righteous because of Christ's work for us to living out of that in our body. And the way that happens is the Spirit. The way that happens is the Spirit. You cannot by yourself, in your flesh, make it happen. That's what Scripture is telling us. You can't do that. It doesn't work. It is infinitely unable to work unless it's God in His Spirit rebirthing us, renewing us. Within all human beings, there's a constant struggle against sin. And the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that the believer is able to struggle with sin meaningfully. We have tools for struggling with sin. God gave us the spirit. God gave us the body. He gave us the encouragement and fellowship of other believers. He gave us tools with which to do battle against sin. And and make no mistake, the, the Christian life is not spiritual warfare in some like special thing that's reserved for especially spiritual Christians who pray a lot. Spiritual warfare is the Christian life. And so that's what we're going to talk about for the next coming weeks but not today. (laughs) We're not going to give you the tools much today. We're pretty much going to open you up and we're going to say, this is who you are. This is what Scripture says about who we are if we are to understand that God has to do the work in and through us. That doesn't mean we don't cooperate. We'll talk about that. We absolutely cooperate. (laughs) But we're going to open up and we're going to let Scripture be a mirror to us. James 1, 22 to 5, if you want to look at that. It's a great passage. James 1, 22 to 5. Scripture is a mirror for us. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is we can struggle meaningfully against sin. The unbeliever cannot. They are left to their own devices. The sin that they love that is aroused by the law, as Paul says, works out through them. But here's Paul's point, and this is where we pick up Romans 7. The law for us, for the believer, is dead. It's, it's something that doesn't affect us. We are free from it, in a sense. So let's look and see where that happens in Romans 7. Pick this up in verse 1 here. This is just like the beginning of chapter 6. There's this pretend objector that Paul is responding back and forth with. There are actual people behind this, but in the text it's a rhetorical device. It's a pretend objector here. So he's responding to these questions. And he says, Do you not know, brothers? Circle brothers there if you're taking notes. That's a a tip-off that what he says next is the case. For I am speaking to those who know the law. He's referring to the Old Testament law. He's also referring to people who are... uh, People who know the law, he's saying, calling them brothers, they're a part of the people of God. He says, don't you know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Remember last week we said that a follower of Christ is dead to sin. This week we are going to see that Paul is telling us as uh, fellow believers in Christ that we are dead to the law. In fact, he says, once you follow Christ, you are free from the law. And that's what we see here in 1 through 6. If you're taking notes, I'm going to write this down. In Christ, this summarizes where we've come from here and what 1 through 6 says. In Christ, 
I have perfectly fulfilled the law. You see, that has to happen if you're going to have a relationship with God next side of eternity. In Christ, I have perfectly fulfilled the law. That truth right there is something that is mind-blowing about what we already have in Christ. We'll continue to unpack that, but that's a sort of summary here. In Christ, I have perfectly fulfilled the law. Now, in verses 2 to 3, he illustrates what he means here by being free from it. He says this, For a married woman, this is verse 2, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives... But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. A married woman has an obligation to her husband if that husband is alive. Paul is just establishing the obvious first. Now look at verse 3. He says, Accordingly, following from that, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. So because of that obligation, if she is with another man while her first husband is alive, she becomes an adulteress, he says. But if her first husband, if her husband dies, she is free from that law, verse 3, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So if her husband dies, her obligation to that first husband ends. It's over. You cannot be obligated to a dead husband, right? Paul is saying that's the function of what the Spirit does for us with the law. You cannot be obligated to a dead husband. So verse 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, there's that brothers thing again, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, through the work of Christ in his body, in his flesh, when he perfectly fulfilled the law. So in the same way as this, Paul says, in Christ, in your union with him, like we talked about last week, In Christ, the law is like just dead to you. It's dead to you. Godfather, you're dead to me. You are no longer obligated to it. And don't miss this in the middle of four. So that. So that you may belong to another. You're not obligated to the law in the way you were before so that you may belong to another, so that you can be obligated to him who has been raised from the dead. Now, does that mean we don't have to do what the law says because, you know, obviously the law is bad? No, no, no. He says later on in the middle part we're skipping, the law is good because the law comes from the character and nature of God. Anything that's written down, the Ten Commandments, the 612 Commandments, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, all those things come from the character and nature of God. Written down, it just means we're writing down what God is. And so we live out of that and we still want to do what that is. But you can't do that in your flesh and we'll get to that in just a second. So he says, verse 4, you are no longer obligated to the law so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. This is so cool. Paul is saying that some of you are still living like you're obligated to a dead husband. Remember the illustration last week? It's like, it's like slavery being, being declared as over by President Lincoln in the Emancipation Proclamation. And yet we read from Booker T. Washington last week that there are people who are still living under that old regime. Even though they've been declared free, they could do whatever they want now. But they didn't know that new way of life yet. And so they were still living out of that old way of slavery. Paul says... Some of you are still living like you're obligated to a law that has been perfectly fulfilled in Christ. That's freedom. That's freedom 
from law because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't get any better than that. So he summarizes this situation now, this new situation, verses 5 and 6. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, desires, aroused by the law, in other words, the law told us that we were sinful, we wouldn't have known otherwise, they were at work in our members, in our body, to bear fruit for death. We once lusted after sin, and when that was the case, we didn't even know. We didn't even know what sin was until the law told us. And as a result, our body was producing that which killed us, physically and spiritually. That was then, and now this is now. Verse 6, he says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Verse 6 would be worth memorizing. It's a great, great verse. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve. Scripture is always about mission, people. It's always about mission. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The written code to which you could never be perfectly adherent. Couldn't. Can't. Won't. Didn't. God knows that. (laughs) And that's why He sent a Savior to perfectly fulfill it for you. So you don't have to live as you're obligated to that dead husband. We were in bondage to sin. In bondage to sin, which is bad, through the law, which is good. But now the Spirit, which makes us alive, gives us the ability to serve God for real. Now at this point, (coughs) everybody protests. And this is in my sermon prep this week. I got to this point, and I kind of felt like Paul in this, and we'll talk about this later on. I kind of felt like, listen, Paul, I don't, and I don't know about you, but I don't feel justified. I mean, like I, like I know it, I read it, I pray it. I can like easily say, oh, you're justified. You, all, all of you are justified. <laughs> but then I, I go into my own heart and I think, man, the way I'm acting doesn't, doesn't seem like I, like I really believe I'm justified. Well, look at verse 15. We'll skip down to 18 in just a second. Paul understands this. He says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul is saying, listen, I get it. I understand what it's like because I live that life of struggle against sin. I understand a sense of obligation to the law. I understand that you still act like slaves to sin, though you are now slaves of righteousness. And he says, that's basically why I'm writing you. And so he He explains this sort of struggle with sin. In fact, we are free to struggle now. And what I mean by that is this. We we struggled before Christ with sin in a way which we can't win. You cannot defeat sin by oneself. We don't have that standing. We don't have that ability in and of ourselves in the flesh. That's what Paul is saying. You can't defeat sin. Unbelievers cannot and will not defeat sin meaningfully. Believers have tools. Believers can do war and battle against sin meaningfully. That's part of what Paul is saying here, and that's what we'll unpack in the next four weeks here, how the Spirit gives us those tools to do battle against sin. Mortification, death of the flesh. Mortification by the Spirit is what he talks about 
in verse 8. I'm sorry, chapter 8. He uses the word spirit one time in chapter 6 and 7. He uses it 22 times in the span of something like 20 verses in uh, Romans chapter 8 as a way of saying the spirit is the tool, the spirit is the tool, the spirit is the way. But not yet. (laughs) We have to unpack who we are first. Before we understand how the spirit can work in us, you have to realize You have to use the Spirit. The Spirit can't work in you unless you let it. The Spirit's not going to work in you if you're saying, Spirit, I don't want you to work in me because I got this. I don't need you. So he's going to establish here in the next number of verses, and these are not not fun and pretty verses. He's going to establish the struggle for sin that we can have some meaningful fight with. Here's how he explains this. Pick it up at verse 18. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. We'll pick up the rest of this later on in just a second, but press pause for verse 18 here. It says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Real quickly, there are people who believe this is about believers. There are people who believe this is about unbelievers. We're not going to unpack all that today. You'll clearly know where I come down on this. Verse 18 says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Now press pause. This, is, this gets at something that hits on this absurd idea in the world today. This idea that, that people are basically and fundamentally good. I think there's this pretty absurd notion. And, and, it, and it comes out of oftentimes our own self-righteousness manipulating the gospel, I think. That people are fundamentally and basically good. I, I don't know about you, but I don't wake up every morning going, who can I bless this morning? On my good days, when, when, when God says to me, I made you, wake up, do something for somebody other than yourself because you're in the Word and you're in prayer and the Spirit's in you. Sometimes when, when I am reminded of who God... Get that reminded? Reminded about who I am because of what God says in me and the Spirit's working in me. Then I wake up and I go okay, let me do some stretches first and get some caffeine in me and give me a couple hours and then I can, then I can go try to bless somebody. I, I don't know about you, but, but I don't wake up feeling like I'm a fundamentally good person. I am basically good. We're going to call a spade a spade. I don't think you and I are fundamentally and basically good in our nature. And I think that's what Scripture teaches us in lots of places. Sure, sure, we're created in God's image. Obviously. We're called good, 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 good in creation. But the image of God is either so badly marred or some believe entirely killed that we have to have a perfect, righteous God make himself known to us in order for us to be good enough to know him. Sin has at least so badly marred or badly or badly marred or even killed the image of God in us that rebirth through God's spirit is the only hope. I think we often are deceived in our perceptions about ourselves. Very deceived. And it's the Spirit of God who tells us who we are, who He made us to be, and that's revealed in Scripture. 
I know that if it weren't for the law, if it, which is good, if it weren't for Scripture, which is good, I would not know who I am. I'd go through life manipulating my relationship with you to be about me all the time. I am basically in it for me. And, and it wouldn't take long for most of us to look in our hearts and, and, and admit that same truth. Listen, I am basically in this for me. Now, by the grace of God and through the work of the Spirit, through the tools of prayer and body of Christ and study of the Word, that is less and less the case. And more and more I'm open to the work of God in my life. And I want to do what is good and what is right. But that doesn't, that doesn't come from who I was in the first place. I'm the one who sinned against Him. I'm the one that bears that personal weight of responsibility Genesis 6.5 says, and this is Scripture talking about the nature of mankind. 6.5 in Genesis says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Psalm 14 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 53 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not one. Ephesians 2.3 says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. On the contrary to the silly idea that people are basically and fundamentally good, you and I must see ourselves in perspective that Scripture tells us about who we are, which is corrupt to the core. And to believe something else about who you think you are is to be deceived. Oh, but you don't know about this. Please. Oh, but Scott, you don't know about this. Oh, Jesus, you don't know about this. Oh, but I... Oh, but I... I why would Jesus come for somebody who doesn't need him? You and I are not basically, fundamentally, in our motivations, good people. And until you get that, until you get that fundamentally, you won't need the Spirit's work. You can handle it on your own. That's Paul's message here. In fact, he says, I'm so bad. <laughs> this is the Apostle Paul speaking. I'm so bad that even though I gave my heart to Jesus and I want to do good, I cannot fully nor easily do so. He's saying basically, I still need the Spirit now, post-identification with Christ, just like I did when I first gave my heart to Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. And that's the truth for all of us. You need the Spirit more now than you even did then because you're aware of it. If I knew how much I needed Jesus when I first gave my heart to Jesus and how little of the Spirit was working in my life then, enough was obviously, then I would have begged and pleaded 
But as it was, I came to Christ. I'm like, I want to do what I know I should do. I had some sense of my need. But I'll tell you what, the sense of my need now is ridiculously far outweighing the sense of my need for God in me three years ago. That's what sanctification is. It's growth in Christ. It's struggling against sin. And you're free to struggle meaningfully. We'll talk about what that looks like, but not today. (laughs) Keep reading here. Verse 18 and 19. This is Paul talking about himself. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. There's this constant battle between spirit and flesh. Does that mean I'm not a believer? No, you're still justified. In fact, verse 20, you are so fully identified with Christ that you're no longer defined by, by your sin. Excuse me. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I am not identified with that sin like I was before. Without Christ, I am so fully identified with that sin that all my body, all my flesh produces is the sin that kills me spiritually. Now, he says, you can do battle against sin even though you're held by your flesh. The Spirit can work in you to produce, to produce godliness. He says, so I find, verse 21, so I find it to be a law. This is just a general word for principle here. He's not talking about the Old Testament law. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. That is the Old Testament law that comes from the heart of God. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is the craziest thing. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my flesh, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Flesh holds back spirit this side of heaven. You can't, you can't escape that. Flesh is going to hold back spirit some this side of heaven. You cannot fully live out the work of the spirit in you as you will be able to with a glorified body. And that's part of what heaven is, is you can, you can live out in glory the, the, the goodness of God in ways that you can't now. In perfect relationship with him. That will be awesome. Until then, there's a struggle. Until then, there's a struggle. It's such a struggle that he calls himself a wretched man, verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am. It's so frustrating. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, this body is hindering me. I want to do what God wants me to do, but I can't as well as I want to. Which is why he declares thanks. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he summarizes again here at the end of 25, like Paul does a lot. He recapitulates the argument. He tells you the Summary of the argument time and again. He says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I want to close with an illustration about what sin looks like and how it works in us. And I think this isn't something that just applies one time. Listen. The battle against sin is an everyday battle. And spiritual warfare is being engaged in that battle meaningfully. There's an old uh, Eskimo way of killing a wolf uh, that talks about this way that sin works in us. 
what the Eskimo would do is they'd take a, a long blade, a long knife, and, and coat it with blood and then freeze it. And then they'd cover it with blood again and freeze it. And they would do that repeatedly, blood freezing, blood freezing, until the entire knife was covered with blood all the way around. And they would, just before nightfall, stick it upside down in the ground. They'd fix it into the, the Arctic snow so that it would be sticking up. And then in the middle of the night, a wolf uh, who has a keen sense of smell uh, would come across and, and start licking on the knife. And uh, Inevitably, what would happen would be that the, the craving for blood would become so great that the wolf wouldn't at a certain point notice that the razor-sharp edge of the knife has been cutting its own tongue and its own blood is what it's satiating itself. It's becoming satisfied and eating its own blood. Sin is ugly. Sin is nasty. And living as a slave to it means at a certain point you're not even you're not even aware you're so deceived you don't know you're being satisfied by the blood of your own sin the blood of your own sin that condemns you clarity about who you are and who I am is awareness that only by the grace of God can we even know that there's another option for us. Only because of the good news of a perfect sinless God come to us in the person of Jesus who bears His own blood that does satisfy to assuage the wrath of God the Father, the justified wrath against our sin. Only because of Him can we stand not condemned that's the good news of the gospel and that's what we're here to celebrate today as the people of God and as that truth about who we really are permeates us the spirit will continue to fill us and work in us and change us and that the body of Christ that corporately as as we give ourselves individually to the spirit's work in us corporately the witness for God coming to make Himself known will be demonstrated in the body of Christ that are uh, in ways that are beautiful beyond our ability to do anything individually. That's how God made this. So that together, the body of believers can be a witness to the truth that Jesus Christ saves. That's the work we're engaged in. And that's why we're asking you to engage with the Spirit's work to transform, to live open-handed, open-handed lives to God's work in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in the quiet of this moment, we open our hands to you. 
forgive us for holding up our arms to You out of fear. Out of fear for what others might think. Out of lack of trust in Your work for us. Give us, Lord, courage. Give us faith. Equip us for the task. Make us men and women who dive into Your work in us with open hands, open arms, ready to take the step of faith that You've called us to. Whether that's someone here who hasn't named You as Christ and Lord, or that's someone here who has walked with You for many, many years and needs to surrender something in their lives. Father, continue that work in us. Continue that work in us so that the work that You do through the people of God here on earth would be a witness to the truth that You are God. Our heart's cry, Lord, is to fulfill the calling that You've given to us. To achieve the mission to which You've called us. We want to be men and women laser-focused on making disciples. We want to be men and women whose lives proclaim the truth that the kingdom of God is at hand. Forgive us for our self-deception, Lord. And continue to teach us through Your Word and through Your Spirit's work in us so that we may become the man and the woman that You created us to be. Faithfully proclaiming the Word of God to one another and to the world. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.